Lord, we come before you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity we have to come and worship you. We ask that you guide and lead us in all that we see and study in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, Psalm 108. And uh, this may sound very familiar because this psalm is a composite of Psalm 57 and Psalm 60. Uh, uh, psalm 57, 7 through 11 and Psalm 65 through 12 are in here. Uh, the first half of each of those psalms is not in there, and we're going to kind of talk about that after we read it. So 57, 7 through 11, and 65 through 12. Oh God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise even with my glory. Awake, psaltery and harp, and I myself will awaken early. I will praise you, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praise unto you among the nations. For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches into the clouds. Be you exalted, O God, above the heavens, and your glory above all the earth, that your beloved may be delivered. Save for, with your right hand and answer me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and met out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine, Manassas is mine, Ephraim also is the strength of my head, and Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot, over Edom I will cast out my shoe, over Philistia I will triumph. Who will bring me into a strong city, who will lead me into Edom? Will not you, O Lord, who has cast us off? Who has cast us off? And will not you, O Lord, go forth with our host? Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of men. Through God we shall do valiantly, for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. One of the things you'll notice on this psalm, and this is a psalm of David, is it's all positive. It's not his usual start out negative and come to a positive end. This is what he did in Psalm 57 and Psalm 60. He started out negative and he came to a strong end. And here he's in a very good Place. He's very happy. He's very, he, he's really singing a great victory song, and it apparently is one that is toward the ender, ender? <laughs> later part of his reign when he has pretty much conquered everybody because he's talking about those things. So we're going to look at this. Uh, we're not going to take a lot of time because most of this we've covered. Oh God, my heart is fixed. I will sing and give praise with, even with my glory. And, it's, you know, he starts out, old God, my heart, my innermost being, my seat of my emotions is fixed. It's established. And in this psalm, it is established. And isn't it great that God will establish our emotions, our thoughts, our fears, our, our, our hard times? He will fix our life in a steady place when, we de when we're devoted to him. So steady fast means hard times. Steadfast, fixed, uh, firm. And it says, I will sing and give praise even with my glory. And this praise here in verse 1 is to sing praise even with my glory, all of my strength, all my reputation. And I got, while I was studying this, I got thinking about how many different words there were in Hebrew for praise. I found eight of them. Eight different words for praise, and they all mean slightly different things when, they, when, you, when you go through them. And they, they range from the actual singing of praise 
to giving confession and thanksgiving, to laud and 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 uh, and come uh, confession, rejoicing, adoration in public, uh, praise and blessing, to shine forth, and to sing praise. I mean, there's great differences, and all these words in English are translated praise. <laughs> Which kind of makes me, you know, it's one of those things that's kind of hard sometimes when you get into this and there's these different things that mean praise and they're all slightly different. And in Psalm, we have seen all the different things because every once in a while I mention praise and this, this particular chapter had a lot of praise words in it in, in one sec, so it got me thinking about it. And it says, Awake, sultry and harp, I myself will awake early. And this early here literally means at the break of day. Mm. Uh, David is saying, I'm going to get up early, God. I'm going to get up with the, with the break of day, and I'm going to break out the instruments. <laughs> now, David's a musician, and it becomes obvious when we read these things that David's a musician. He's always talking about breaking out the, the psaltery and the harp, and the psaltery is some form of guitar or lute type thing, and the and the harp, and it says he wakes up early. We were just talking about getting up early, doing things first thing in the morning. And you know, this is something, do we really praise God in this way? Oftentimes, when uh, we get together, do we truly give God everything we have, and do we get together with him early in our days? And uh, that's what Sharon was saying early. If you don't start early, especially in the heat of the day, you kind of get wrapped up in your day, and before you know it, you haven't given God his part of the day. That's a good way to start the day because what I have found is when I start my day with God, usually what it is I've spent my time reading in the devotions is what I need for that day, which is pretty amazing because I have a schedule I follow just like we have for the church. I have my own Bible reading schedule, and it's amazing that whatever I read that day is what I need for that particular day. And it just really goes to show you how alive God's word is anyway. Because whatever you read, it becomes something that you need and you meditate it's almost, on it. It's almost like it's personalized to each person. Billions of people, it's personalized. It's hard for me to imagine. Think about it. The Bible is, per, is a personal message. To millions to of people. To billions of people. Yeah, it means a personal message. But it means that it's a personal message to each of us. Because the Holy Spirit is the one that interprets it to each one of us. And he's the one that wrote it so he knows exactly how to apply it to our lives. And even having, having just studied these things, I went back to look at my notes on these things. I found all kinds of new things in these verses that I had not noticed before. This is the wonder about God's Word that it, it just amazes me that after 44 years, 44 years, it's always new, it's always fresh, there's always something that jumps off the page in a new way, in a new light. And it's amazing because of how alive his word is. It's not just a dead book that you read. And it's amazing on how I keep thinking of all these other people in this world that he is answering and he still has time for me. I mean, oh, I mean, yeah. not just Arizona, I mean the whole world. Right. He still has time for me, so I don't want to waste my time. Because well, he has time for all the souls and women. He, he's an amazing God and cares. And, that's, and this is the wonderful thing is that he cares for each one of us individually. And this is something that there's so many even Christians who don't understand that and the, and the lost world doesn't understand it at all. 
you know, why would you follow this, you know, God with the Bible? Well, because he cares and he gives me answers and he provides everything that we need in his grace and his mercy that he gives us. It's just so wonderful in the way that he applies it to our life. And it's amazing. And we get up and we serve him. We praise him. We, we, we read the word. We meditate on it. Verse 3 says, I will praise you, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises unto you among the nations. This word, I will praise, is I will conf- literally means I will confess, I will give thanks. I will give thanks unto you, O Lord, among the people. And just as I mentioned the last time we read this, do we celebrate God and praise God among people? This is something we need to do as Christians, really share with one another what God does in our life. And I tell you, the, one, the most important thing I like in church is hearing people's testimonies. What has God done for them? What has God done for you in each day is so very powerful. Giving those testimonies are so valuable. Reading the testimonies, listening to testimonies, Annie was sharing some of the testimonies she's been listening to online for the speakers that we listen to a lot on the radio. Then if you go to their websites, they have their, their testimony. You, you get on the Christian radio channel and you listen to the, the shows like uh, Pacific Gardens. I uh, can't remember the name of their show, but they go through these people who've gotten saved through their, through their programs and they give you their testimonies and everything. It builds you up to hear what God is doing in people's lives because then it makes you realize a couple things. Number one, your life probably could have been worse than it was. And no matter how bad things do get, God is going to be faithful. And that's the most important thing about listening to people's testimonies is God will always be faithful and come through for you. You read The Hiding Place, which Annie's talked about so many times, and watch how God protected them until he took them into the concentration camp and still protected them, but yet took some of them home. You read something like uh, God's Smuggler, where Brother Andrew was smuggling Bibles and some of the amazing things that he did, you know, to write, you know, that God used to, to do, you know, get him uh, protected. You know, we go through these things. You, you read this cross on the switchblade where David Wilkerson is in the inner city of New York leading gang members to Christ and the challenges that he does, they happen to him. You read the story of George Mueller and how God built his faith from a, from a man who didn't understand God at all, who loved to drink and party and went, went to seminary just because pastors in, in, in the country were paid well. <laughs> okay, uh, Not because he cared about God or even God's word, just pastors got paid well at that time and he wanted to be paid well. God eventually got hold of him because he was studying the Bible and he started building his faith to the place where he learned to pray and he built orphanages and, and all of this stuff that he did. You know, we read through these things. You read about uh, Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, uh, all these great leaders that are out there. Carmichael was a woman missionary. You read about people like Lottie Moon that we're celebrating and Annie Armstrong who led missions organizations. You, we get into these things and you see how God lifted up these people. You, you read about uh, Elizabeth Elliot, who went to, who later on became another name after, got, after her husband died. They went to be missionaries in, to, 
to a headhunting tribe in, in uh, South America and her husband was killed. And she stayed down there after he was killed and the Indians finally came out and said, we need to talk to you. And she went to live with the Indians that had killed her husband because they got saved. You know, but we see how God builds up people's faith bit by bit. And then when you start looking at your own life, you say, oh, these little tests that I'm going through have a reason because they build you and make you ready to take the bigger test that he sends your way and to do greater challenges for him. God is never going to ask you to do more than you can handle, but he'll take you places you never thought you could handle, little bit by little bit, little lesson by little lesson. And then you kind of look back and say, wow, I, I'm doing things I never thought I would have done. I, I'm making it through problems that I never thought I would do. And you look at the pattern over your life and see all the little things that led to being able to go through the bigger thing. The second half of this verse says, I will sing praises unto you among the nations. David says, I'm going to sing praises, not just to the people in my own land, but to the nations. We need to be able to share. And, I, and I've shared with you, I used to love, especially when I was working in the restaurants, I do it a little bit in the prison as well, but when I was working in the restaurants, I used to love and come in and say, especially after the weekends or some people coming in and going, you know what God did this week for me? And you know, they're all looking at me like I'm a total nut, you know, because here I am talking about God, you know, and they're not interested in God at all. And and I'm attributing everything to God. Do we really go to the nations? And Sharon's really good about that with her business and everything and sharing, sharing that. But we need to be out. And nations here is literally Gentiles. Israel was called to give the gospel message and God to the Gentiles, even though they pulled in and ignored the Gentiles. They never did what they were supposed to. And then verse 4 says, For your mercy is great above the heavens, and your truth reaches in unto the clouds. This is kind of interesting. I, I really looked at this. His mercy is great above the heavens. God's mercy. Giving, not giving us what we deserve. Reaches all the way to heaven. We have access to heaven because of his mercy. His mercy is so great that he sent his son to die for us so that we would not have to pay for our own sin. And it reaches all the way to heaven. We're, we, we will be praising God for his mercy for all of eternity because we are not where we belong because of the payment that Jesus paid. And then we'll have the grace that we're looking at because of all the great things we have up there. But it's kind of interesting. And it says, your truth reaches unto, unto the clouds. His truth. What is his truth? It is really something that is fixed and absolute. It's for this day and age that we're in. His truth is for us. I was reminded yesterday on our way home from Havasu, I was listening to Unshackled, as a matter of fact. That's the show that I was trying to listen to. And this one person quoted an acronym that I hadn't heard in a long time. It's for fear. Okay? And I'd heard it many, many years ago when I was a teenager. An acronym for fear is false evidence appearing real. If you are afraid of something, Satan is giving you false evidence and making it look real. God's truth conquers all fear because his truth is that he is stronger than anything that comes our way. Satan loves to give us evidence that's false. But how many times are we afraid of something and we, when we get to the other side of the problem we realize there was nothing to it in the first place? 
fear always causes us looks always causes itself to look bigger always when you're on when you're facing it you see it as a giant Israel under Saul saw Goliath as a fearful giant because they were looking at the giant and not God David came in and he was looking at God and he didn't see a giant. He just saw, saw somebody defying his God, and his God was bigger than the giant. Okay? If we can stand in the truth of God that he is sovereign and he's in charge, there is nothing really that can give us fear. Now, that takes time. It takes a long time to be able to develop that kind of thought pattern that I'm going to trust in God in all situations. But, you know, the more we trust in God, the less we have to be afraid of because we go, my God is bigger than all of this. What can separate us from the love of God, Romans says, you know, can height? Nope. Can depth? Nope. Can width? Nope. You know, nothing can keep us apart from God. And then if that wasn't enough, the physical dimensions weren't enough, he goes, neither can spiritual things. If we are in the center of God and we are hiding in God and we are clothed in Christ, what have we to fear? Absolutely nothing. We're not going to die until God tells us it's time to go home. He's not going to give us anything greater than we can handle in him anyway. And if in him we can handle a lot more than we think we can because we're in him. So if we're hiding in him, we're focused on him. There is no problems to be afraid of. There is nothing to be afraid of. No fear. No. And the Bible is full of this. And I'm starting to really catch back onto this idea. God challenges us to be strong and steadfast and move forward. We oftentimes act like wimps and cowards and chickens. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, can't talk to this person, can't do this, can't do that, can't, can't go there, can't be this. And God's saying, why not? <laughs> Get out and do something. Be bold, be courageous. Share the gospel with people. Too many times people are afraid to share the gospel. I had a chance to share the gospel a little bit, you know, bringing the guy that worked on Samuel's car back to his house. So we shared, we talked a little bit about the gospel. Not real heavy, but just a little bit. And it was a good time. And God's truth, his truth will set us free because Satan lies to us all the time. Always. And when we're dealing with people who are not believing God and his truth, all we do is we give his truth and we let it sit. Because the truth always wins. Always. The truth will always come out. The truth will always be true. And the truth is never afraid of a lie. This is one thing you would be very surprised at. Many Christian schools will teach about evolution. Not that it's true, but they teach about evolution so they know what's going to be said to them. Because the Christian is not worried about evolution because evolution is a bunch of lies that fall apart when examined. God's truth holds up. We're coming into the resurrection season and you're going to hear all these different stories about how the resurrection isn't true and you can't trust it. It can't possibly be true. If you, exam if you examine the evidence of it, it becomes abundantly clear that it must be true and that it, they did every... The one thing that, that the Jewish leaders did to make sure that it was to be proven provable is they tried to stop it from happening. Their very actions made it so that his resurrection is a miracle. 
Because if they hadn't guarded the tomb then the, and the tomb was empty, they could have said, well, the disciples just took the body away in the, in the middle of the night. But because they were guarding it with an elite unit of men, the, the disciples couldn't have taken the body. They couldn't have overpowered them. So they, by their own actions, they made it so that it was a provable event <laughs> to, you know, to look at. Truth stands up. And we want to be very understanding that truth will always win. Verse 5, be you exalted, O God, above the heavens and glory above the earth. Oh, exalt God, lift him up. God, let you be exalted, let you be lifted up. Above the heavens and your glory above the earth and his glory, his splendor, his, his uh, reputation, God's splendor. The more the world tries to tear down God's splendor and reputation, the more his reputation and splendor is increased with those who will see it. And verse 6, that your beloved may be delivered, saved with your right hand, and answer me. Who's the beloved? In this particular psalm, he's literally speaking of Israel. But for us as Christians, we are also his beloved just think about it. We are the beloved of God. He loves us special. He loves the world, but we as his people are beloved, special, ex exalted in from the rest of the world. How much does God love us? I don't think we even begin to scratch the surface of how much God loves us. And no matter and I think it's the same, I have the same principle. No matter how big you think God is, you're too small. No matter how strong you think God is, you've got him too weak. No matter, you know, I don't think we fully understand his love toward us. And no matter how much you think you understand the love toward, his love toward you, you don't understand it enough. And this is, God is so much bigger, so much greater than anything that we can think of. So anything that relates to God, is, we're just scratching the surface of his love, his mercy, his grace. You know, think about this. His grace, all that he gives us. He owns everything and wants to abundantly bless us if we will just keep him exalted in the middle of it all. Many times I think he holds back just because we won't honor him the way we're supposed to. Because many times people will use God's blessings for their own joy or whatever you know, and, and it's not totally wrong but when you use it all for yourself and not for God there's a problem with it and God is saying I am to be exalted I am to be lifted up the whole reason he asks for tithes and offerings is not because he needs the money but he wants to see that we're faithful and if we're faithful he gives us more to be faithful with if we're not faithful he says okay you don't want to use it right anyway so I'm not going to give you the blessings that I have for you we look through the scriptures and all the blessings. You know, I, and I think about Joseph. Poor Joseph, you know, sold into slavery. Had a vision, that a dream that he was going to, that his brothers were going to bow down and his brothers made sure that it happened. They sold him into slavery and made sure that it happened. If they hadn't sold him into slavery, they would have never bowed down in front of him most likely. So they sold him into slavery, but Joseph's going to spend 13 years languishing 
in pain and suffering. Yes, he gets raised up. He gets into Potiphar's house and he gets to be the number one slave, but he's still a slave. He's still making money for somebody else. He's still serving and doing what somebody else says. And he ends up falsely accused of, of rape and goes to prison and finally gets elevated to the number two spot of all of Egypt. How many of us after 13, you know, less than 13 years would have given up on God and saying, God, uh, these, this vision you gave me was a lie. You lied to me. You lied to me in the dreams. I'm not following you because you're not worth following. Most of us would do that. This is why I also recommend that we read biographies because we watch these people who suffer for years as God brings about the, the elevation that they're going to have. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband, spent another few years down there in the jungles before, she, before the tribe came out and drew her back in. Most people would have said, well, I lost my husband, I'm going home. She was still young. They, were, they hadn't been married very long. And she stayed down there to minister to these Indians. George Mueller took years to get, the, to get the faith to be able to pray his way through all the problems that he was going to do. And he, was, he had a budget of several hundred pounds a month in a day when that was a fortune of money. If you had 200 pounds in the bank, you were rich. He spent that every month taking care of orphans and missionaries and God kept providing it to him, all through prayer. How quickly do we fade away on our trust with God? Just because we can't pay a bill on time, or pay a bill, and it doesn't look like we're going to be able to pay a bill, or whatever it might be, and we get all flustered with God and, and decide that he can't do it, or we get a little bit of pressure from our family, or something doesn't seem to go right. How quickly do we give up on God? One of the reasons we look at these people's testimonies, look at Abraham. Abraham gets called by God, and he spends the next 70 years waiting for the, for the fulfillment of the promise, and he gets one kid. And he's supposed to have a whole nation full of kids. And he gets one. His son's given the promise, and he has a whopping two sons. <laughs> he gets twice as many kids. And only one of them is the one that's going to make a great nation. And he spends his whole life with this promise. How many of us would give up because God didn't give us what we thought we were supposed to have in our timing? The problem is we keep looking at God for our timing. Put up the quote today, God is at work around us all the time, everywhere. The problem is we do not know how to see it most of the time. We don't look around to see what God's doing in our life. Why? Because we don't have spiritual eyes. We're not trying to figure out what God's doing. This is why we need to learn to focus on God and say, God, what are you doing? And help me see what you're doing. And I'm going to tell you, it's hard sometimes to see what God's doing. And when you're in the middle of the test, he's not sitting there t telling you what he's doing. There's a, there's a line in, in God's Not Dead 2 that I love. She goes, I'm going through this test and I can't seem to hear God. And her father goes, you're a teacher. You should know that when you're in the middle of a test, your teacher doesn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> but isn't that true? It's true. So it's a line I use with the inmates when they ask me a question on the test. I go, I know the answer, but it's not a test to know what I know. It's a test to show, me, show us what you know. 
When we're in the middle of a test, it's a test for us to show what we know, not to God, really, but to show us where we're really at. That's the whole purpose of a test, so that I begin to know what I, what I know and what I don't know. Because Joseph had amazing faith. He went 13 years without giving up on God. I don't know that I could go 13 years without seeing some evidence of God. Now, maybe he saw something we, that we didn't see, but 13 years without seeing it, you know, any great strong evidence of God. Abraham, 70 years without seeing much from God. Moses, 40 years on the backside of the desert, being groomed to take, uh, take the children of Israel into, into their trip that he's going to spend 40 years being driven nuts with them by. <laughs> and we're just going for like a year or something, and then we're going... And if we go, well, sometimes if we only go an hour or two without God answering our prayers, we're, we're, we're panicking. You know, God, where are you? What are you doing? Are we learning to focus on God? How much are we focused? Do we truly believe that God's in charge and he's got a plan, whether I see it or not? Because that's where the real faith comes in. When God says do something, we just do it. And we keep doing it until he tells us not to. But so often we're ready to give up and not go forward. And it says, save with your right hand. And we've talked about right hand. That's the side of approval. God, save. Save us. And we're, you know, deliver us from our problems and give us that deliverance. And this word for, for deliver in this verse is to deliver, save, and to equip or arm. You realize that when God delivers you, he equips you to get through the problem. All we have to do is be faithful with it. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. He's the one that, that brings us by calm water. He's the one that puts us in green pastures. He is leading all the time. All we do is we get to just have faith in him. We get into the word. We study. We equip ourselves, we equip ourselves through his word, and he equips us through his word and makes us prepared to handle what's coming our way. We get to think more like him. By getting into his word, we get to think like he thinks. We get to begin to learn to, to be like him. And then he says, and answer me. Respond to me, God. David says, you know, save with your right hand and respond to me. The greatest thing that we have is that God literally speaks to us. Sometimes it's through his word. Sometimes it's through the impressions that he puts in our, into our mind as we're dwelling and meditating on him. And I've heard people say that they've heard an audible voice. I've had twice when I think it was so strong in my life that it was, didn't seem quite audible, but it might as well have been because I knew it was God speaking very clearly. And there's been a, several times when that's happened. And one time just recently, I was going along and God said, you know, do, do you really believe what you just said that in that bi particular Bible study? And okay, God, what, you know, all right, God, I, I, I'm not even going to argue here. Let's, <laughs> let's take the step. <laughs> you know, uh, but God will tell us. Many times he'll be looking at you and, you, and you're going to go, okay, God, what, <laughs> how much, how little, how, how far, how high? <laughs> And that really should be our question with God. You know, there's the old statement when, when, when mama says jump, you ask how high. 
we really should be doing that with God. When God says something, okay, God, how high, how far, how long, how much, you know, uh, how many, whatever it might be, God, how far do you want me to go and go beyond, you know, go at least as far as he says, if not beyond. But God answers us. Then it says, God has spoken in his holiness, I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and met out the valley of Sukkoth. God has spoken. God has declared in his holiness, his separateness. Do you realize that God is so holy and yet he wants to deal with us? It's an amazing thought when you think about it. He is so far beyond us and yet he deals with us. As Sharon has said, he controls the whole universe. He's got millions and billions of people to take care of and, and he cares about us individually. He holds, now let's take this even further. It's not just the people. He holds the very atoms of the universe together. If God was to just get distracted for a moment and not think about holding the universe together, it would blow apart. <laughs> because scientists talk about the nucleus being held together by what they call the atomic force. They don't know what it is. Because they know that it can't, an atom cannot hold together. If you've ever tried to put magnets together with the same positive end, how much force do you have to do to put the magnet together? You know, if they're a strong magnet, you can't do it. Even, even with small magnets, they're hard to put together and, and force together. You, and if you stop holding them, they blow apart. The nucleus of an atom has protons, like charges, put together that should blow apart. It's surrounded by electrons that should collapse into the protons because they will be attracted to the protons, and yet they fly around the nucleus instead of crashing into it. So he never sleeps and he never gets tired. He never sleeps, he never gets tired, and he's never... It, when the end comes and he destroys this, this world with fire, as it tells us, at the end of the millennial kingdom, and he gets ready to create the new heaven and earth, all he has to do is for one moment say, okay, just... just Go into your natural state and explode. Yeah. And the force of that explosion would be phenomenal. We built the hydrogen bomb, which was just, just the splitting of one small atom. The smallest of the atoms <laughs> split and destroyed two cities in, their, in, the, in the two bombs we dropped. Imagine what a big element would do if it started to be split up. We look at this. God holds everything together. Matter of fact, it says that Jesus holds the whole world together. The power of God. And so much, so fine a detail that he holds the very universe together for every second that it's a every microsecond, every millisecond, every nanosecond that it's held together, he's holding it together. And he's keeping it together. And yet he still has time, after, even though he's holding the whole universe together, to deal with each one of us individually. Uh, think about the power of God. And this is why I say, no matter how powerful you think God is, <laughs> he's not, you don't have him powerful enough. You know, no matter how powerful you think he is, he's not powerful enough. He's bigger, he's bigger yet. That's why he fixed my computer. <laughs> he says, I will divide Shechem. 
I will met out the valley of Sukkoth. He's putting things in order. Shechem is part of Israel, and he says, God's dividing it. He's, he's dividing it. He's giving the inheritance out. And Sukkoth is on the east side of the Jordan, and he says, I've measured it out as well. This is David. He's saying, God's giving me victory. He's, giving, he's dividing out our land the way it's supposed to be divided. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the strength of my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Now, you may or may not recognize some of these names. Gilead is the grandson of Manasseh. He's, and we see that in uh, uh, Numbers 26, 29. He's the grandson of Manasseh. Manasseh is on the east side of Jordan. is half of the tribe of Manasseh. Gilead produces all kinds of fine oils and everything in their region that they're given. And he says, Manasseh and Ephraim. Do you realize that Manasseh and Ephraim are Joseph's children? Okay, this is uh, Genesis 41. They're his first two children. And when Jacob meets the children, what does he tell Joseph? He goes, these are my children. <laughs> you know, you think they're yours, but they're mine. I'm taking them as my, my children. And they became counted as the part of the 12 tribes of Israel because Levite was taken away from the tribes of Israel and, and taken by God as his child. To, to be the one that served him, which would have given you 11 tribes. So Joseph gets a double portion, and Ephraim and Manasseh become tribes of Israel. So Joseph has a double portion because there's no tribe of Joseph. He has two, actually, but, but uh, he says, they're mine. And it says, Ephraim also is the strength of my hand, of my head. Ephraim is the strongest of the tribes, the largest of the tribes. They're the one that supplies the most military men in these battles of, that, over the years. And they are the strength of Israel in, in, people number, in, in the number of peoples. Number of people. And then Judah is my lawgiver. It goes all the way back to Gen, uh, Genesis 49 when Jacob gives the blessing on his children and he calls Jacob the lawgiver. It's the line that David comes out of. It's the line that Jesus comes out of. It's where the king is. And where the true lawgiver will come is Jesus himself. is the only law, true lawgiver in, the, in, the, in this world. And he comes from the line of Judah. And here he's saying, this is the blessing of God. Here he's, here he's got all his blessings. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Over Philistia I will triumph. And this is David talking. Moab is my wash pot. If you, we're not going to go into, into it because we're running out of time, but in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2, David defeats Moab. He lines up all the men of Moab, kills half of them, and makes half of them his servants. Moab is my wash pot. They're serving, they're serving me in all that they do. And then he says, Edom I will cast... Will I cast my shoe? In other words, he's saying, Edom is not even a concern. I'm going to go shoeless around Edom. You know, I'm just going to throw my shoes at them. And in, and in Edom, we see in, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 15 through 16, and 2 Samuel chapter 8 through 13 through 14, that David virtually wipes out Edom. Um, uh, Edom. And again, they're, 
they're part of their family, too long, long distance family. Again, they're not treating Israel. They've never treated Israel well. But he says they're virtually wiped out. They spend months in the, in the battle of the Valley of the Salt killing the Edomites and kill virtually every male of the Edomites. So there's no, Edomite is just about wiped out. So David's saying, God gives me these victories, they're wiped out. Over Philistia, I will triumph. 2 Samuel 8.1, he just virtually destroys the Philistines. And on this particular, whether he had at this point or not, it doesn't matter because David's looking back and saying, hey, back in the beginning, you know, that was my first big battle. I, I just, we, we, killed, we killed Goliath and the, and the Philistines. We can do it again. We can do it anytime we need to. David's confidence in the Lord to give him victory is so big. And here it is, he's saying, yeah, Moab, no big deal. Edom, no big deal. The Philistines, no big deal. How do we feel when we have an enemy stand against us? Spiritual, physical, whatever it might be, how do we react? Do we react in fear? Or do we say, God, you are the one who's going to give me victory? Going back to the Philistines with Goliath, Saul and the people saw a giant that was undefeatable. You know, and he probably would have been nine foot, nine foot tall, you know, bigger than anybody there, you know, sword that weighed more than most of the most of the men that would have gone up against him. You know, Goliath was absolutely sure he was going to win because he was so strong and big that he figured if anybody comes up to me, I'll just hit him over the head with the sword and they'll and they'll collapse and then I can cut him up. You know, it's uh, and then David looks at him and says, "Hey, my God's bigger than this guy. He is defying the God of Israel." Do we look at our enemies like that? They're defying the God of Israel. They're defying my God. You realize that there is nobody that's going to stand against God, ever. He will always win every battle. Matter of fact, he tells us all that he's going to win the biggest battle. When Satan himself gathers up the people to fight against him in the last battle, and he's defeated. And this battle is after people have spent a thousand years watching God work, ruling in, ruling in perfection. We'll be there for the thousand years. We'll be on the right side. We'll be on the right team. We'll be on the right side. And it really won't be a battle. They come against him and he speaks and they're dead. <laughs> yeah. Trying to fight God is really not a very good, good thing to be doing. Uh, the battles don't go well when, he, when you're fighting him. Because all he's going to do is, you know, say, be destroyed. You know, all you got to do is be dead and you're dead. <laughs> yeah. So, but David's confidence was in God. No matter how big the enemy was, his confidence was in God. Again, this is why we share testimonies with one another. So we build up that confidence. We see how God has delivered others and we can get confidence that he'll deliver us. Very powerful thing to be able to say, my God is strong. My God has never been defeated. And I love the picture of this when the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant from Israel in a battle because they were, Israel was misbehaving and not doing it right. They put the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the temple of Dagon. And that next morning they came in and, the, the, and Dagon was on his face flat in front of the Ark. So they propped up Dagon and put all kinds of ropes on there to make sure he didn't fall down again. 
And the next morning they found him broken up in pieces on his face in front of the ark and decided that we might want to get rid of the ark. And they moved it around to all the big towns of, of uh, the Philistines and they kept getting diseases everywhere that the ark went. <laughs> Yeah, and then they decided, well, maybe we'll send it back to you. Well, well, maybe we should send it back to Israel. And so they put it on a cart, and, and kind of an amazing thing even then, because even then when they were doing that, they didn't really want it to go in there because they put it on a, milk, a, a mother cow that had calves and let the, calf, let the mother go wherever it wanted while the calves were mooing in the back for their mom. And the, the cow would normally have turned back to her calves, and yet the cow went to Israel. <laughs> so they didn't want, they were, they were really pushing that for a miracle on that and got it as well. <laughs> and Israel gets the, get, gets the Ark of the Covenant back. But God has never been defeated. Never been defeated. He, Satan believed he had defeated him when he crucified Jesus and put him in the grave. Can you imagine the demons and devils having a, a party? We killed God for three days, <laughs> and then they had total defeat. He has never been defeated, never will be defeated, and will always come out the victor. And he's told us already in the, what, the fu what the future holds in store, and that we have heaven in store for us, a perfect place to exist for eternity. Verse 10, who will bring me into the strong city? Who will lead me into Edom? So here he's asking some rhetorical questions. He's not really looking for any kind of answers in this. Verse 11, will not you, O Lord, who has cast us off? And will not you, O God, go forth with our hosts? God, you're the one that's going to go forth. God, you're the one that's going to give victory. This is one of the things that give us the faith. God is going to give us victory in his time. All we have to do is realize, God, you are in control. I just want to sit back and let you have control. We, we get out there and we mess things up. We get in the way. We slow things down. It's still in God's time, but we think we slow things down. Abraham tried to speed God's blessing up. He went out and he got, took Hagar as a wife and had a son, Ishmael. Ishmael has caused Israel nothing but trouble ever since. All because Abraham and Sarah had tried to help God. We see this over and over again in the Bible. When we try to help God, things, bad things happen. Consequences happen. We need to learn to just have faith and rest in God. Just to rest. And again, that doesn't mean we don't do anything, but we do take advantage of the opportunities he gives us. But we just rest. We know that he is in control. What's the worst thing that can ever happen to us? We go through a little, few trials for a while until God gives us the blessing that comes out on the other side of the trials. Yea, though I walk through the shadow of the valley of death, and he goes through trials and troubles and tribulations. Joseph, 13 years in, in prison. Uh, the children of Israel, a couple hundred years in, in captivity, being made into slaves in, is, in Egypt so that they would be taken into the promised land. We see all of these things that God does, 
and how he blesses. And we see that God is very patient. God is so patient. You know, he takes, and it takes him 40 years to prepare Moses to be the leader that he wants him to be. And even then, Moses has lots of problems in the 40 years that he's leading. And we see those over and over again. His anger really gets the better of him. Moses had a really bad anger problem, and it shows up all over in the, in the walking around the wilderness. Peter had some really big issues with God. You know, uh, you know, he always wanted to tell, you know, he was bold enough to tell Jesus he wasn't going to the cross. <laughs> you, know, you know, and what did Jesus say? Get you behind me, Satan. You know, it's, you know, that's pretty bold to tell, your, you know, tell, tell the person you're supposed to be following, no, you're not doing something. But we see over and over God saying, this is going to happen. His patience in the tribulation period, spending seven years to discipline people so that some will come to him during that period of time. When he could just say, okay, goodbye, you're all dead. <laughs> you know, you've rejected me and now there's no more, no more for you. But God's patience. And you know, for us, we want him to be patient with us, but how often do we want him to not be patient with those that we don't think deserve their, their patience? You know, but if we really thought about it, we didn't deserve the patience either that he gave us. And we really want him to be patient with us. And yet we want, like David so many times, go get him, God. <laughs> Sick him, God. Uh, you know, they're, they're causing me trouble. Go get him. And God's saying, no, I've been showing you patience. I've been showing you kindness. I'm going to show them kindness. God gives people enough rope to either decide to follow him or they will hang by the rope that they've gathered up. And he does, did the same thing for us before we became Christians. How many of us should have died long before we got saved? How many of us should have died long before we got dedicated to God? And God says, I've showed you great patience. I've shown you great mercy. We need to be able to show that same loving mercy to others that are irritating us, that bother us. God, teach me to love them. Teach me to be gracious to them. Because God's grace will bring them to him. He will, God is the one that goes to war. Will, will not you, O Lord, cast us off, uh, go into the city? Will you, O God, go forth with our host? God is the one that leads. He goes into battle. The verse 12 says, Give us help from trouble, for vain is the help of man. Give us your help, God. How many times do we go to other people to try to get help? And he says, vain is help from man. Vain is the help from man. Israel on many occasions would go to Egypt to try to, to battle you know, to, to get help for in their battles. On one occasion, God said, you know, what did you go there for? I'm your, I'm your strength. You know, don't go to Egypt. You're, I'm your protector. Don't go to these mercenaries. I'm your, I'm your strength. And God says, man's help is vain. That does not mean that the advice that you get can all be bad. Sometimes it's good. But you know, how many times have you gone to people for advice and gotten bad advice? Non-biblical advice. Be careful who you go to for advice. Make sure you're going to get biblical, godly advice. Watch if you uh, watch the movie Fireproof, it's kind of an interesting movie when they do their little montage of the, 
when they're talking to their friends and he's talking to a godly man and he's getting godly advice and, the, and his wife is talking to all these ungodly women and they're telling her how she should get divorced and get rid of him and all this stuff and he's going and his friend's saying you need God and you need, you need to pray for her and, and you know, same, same statements being made, totally different advice. We can go to people and get human advice. I've heard it in many churches where people go, you know, I'm having trouble in my marriage and this, that, and the other. Oh, you should get divorced. God hates divorce. That's not biblical. That is not biblical advice. And yet, how many times is that the advice you hear from Christians? (laughs) You know, we need to be careful. If somebody comes to you for advice, take a moment to pray and say, God, how do I answer this person with godly wisdom, biblical truth. Because the human way is not going to be the way to get out of the problem. The human runs from the problems. The human eliminates and says that the individual is the problem. And the real problem is not the individual. It's the enemy behind the problem. Satan wants to destroy marriages. He wants to destroy families. He wants to destroy countries. He wants to destroy churches. And if we start fighting amongst ourselves as Christians in a church, we'll destroy the local body of Christ. And it's not the people that were the problem. It was the mover behind the people who is Satan. Not necessarily Satan directly for most places, but he is the prime mover putting things into place. When families are destroyed, it's him that's stirring up the the issues and getting people to think in human terms instead of biblical terms. And this is why we get into our Bible, we learn the Bible, we, we think like God so that when we start coming into these problems, we see who the enemy is and we see the answer because we follow God's truth and quit looking at the false enemy. The enemy is not the person you're dealing with in most cases, it's the spirit behind the enemy. When Peter said to Jesus, you're not going to cross, to the cross, Jesus said, get you behind me, Satan. He wasn't literally speaking to Peter. He was speaking to the enemy that Peter was listening to. So we want to be careful about this. God is our help. He's the one that will get us through. Then verse 13, through God, we shall do valiantly for he it is that shall tread down our enemies. Through God, we are victorious. We can be bold in God. We can be victorious. Why? Because God is the one who wins the battle. He is the one that defeats the enemy. This is why Christian living is such an easy thing to do. I hide in God. He moves forward. I get victory because he's victorious. And all I did was follow him. He took the arrows. He took the attack. He took the all the, everything going on, and I get the victory. And I get the credit for it. God gives us credit for being submitted to him, and we get the credit, we get the rewards, we get the, the, all the benefits of being submitted to him. In many times, it's kind of like the military, and you may or may not know this, but when a, when a unit goes into battle and earns a award or, or, or commendation for the unit. The unit gets the award. All the support people that 
supported them gets the reward. All the way back to the headquarters gets rewards because without any one of those pieces, nothing would have happened. So everybody up the whole, and people will look at it, well, those guys supplying them didn't do anything. They didn't do any fighting. Yeah, but if they didn't give you the supplies, you wouldn't have been having the bullets to be able to shoot or the, or the you know, this, that, or the other thing to be able to have the battle. And if the people at the, at the main camp didn't get you the right orders and the right stuff ordered, you wouldn't have been able to win. So they recognize that it takes everybody to get that award. God does the fighting and he rewards us. And we, didn't, we literally did nothing. All we did was stay faithful. We didn't even do supply line. We just <laughs> stayed where we were supposed to be in him. And that's why I tell you, one of the things I love about God is he does the work and we get the rewards. Well, yeah. Trample down the enemy. Down. You know, but God is faithful. He delivers. He gives us victory. And aren't all the, the human nature, aren't most people trying to look for let somebody else do the work and get their, get their reward. And they've seen it all the time in the business place where it says, let me do as little as possible and let everybody else do the work so I get the reward. And God's plan is just that. He does the work and he rewards us. But he willingly does it. <coughs> willingly does it. He says, don't worry about what you said. The Holy Spirit will fill your mouth. Don't worry about how you're going to get strength on this because cast all your cares on me for I care for you. I will give you the strength. I will walk beside you. I will carry you in the midst of all this. He's the good shepherd that even if we manage to somehow get lost, he goes and finds us and brings us back. We get on the other side of, the other side of the little, little dip and we can't see him and we start crying out for help. He goes, oh, I'm right here. Come on over on the other side of the, you know, you really weren't in trouble, but come on over. I'll pick you up and bring you over. If you get real far off, he'll go search for you. This is the God that we have, that we worship, who loves us so much that he will find us when we're lost. He'll provide everything for us when we're not lost. And he takes care of us. The shepherd is a picture that he has of himself. And what does a shepherd do? Feeds the sheep, waters the sheep, heals them if they get cuts and bruised, goes, finds them if they get lost, guides them through the, the trials and the, and the hardships, protects them from the enemies. That's our shepherd. Makes our life pretty simple, doesn't it? And that's the way sheep are. Sheep, and I've told you guys, I used to pray with this guy, and he had sheep, and there was just this little tiny, not much more than about a three-foot hill, but the sheep would get on the other side and panic because they couldn't see the house anymore. Or, or each other. You know, our, you know, normally we think our problems are bigger, but you know, but that's just it. We think our problems are bigger. When we look at the problem from the wrong side before the victory, we look at it and it looks huge. It looks like a monster. Then we get God delivers us and we kind of look back over and go, that anthill was what I was afraid of? That, that little molehill, the, the thing that doesn't even, even any very big at all is what I was afraid of? But this is where the victory comes in. When we're on the other side and it's been victorious, it's not a big deal. If you've ever played sports, sometimes you know that feeling when you're getting ready to play a team that there's no way you should be able to, to match up with and somehow you manage to win and you realize it wasn't that big a deal. We can psych ourselves out many times with looking at the problems and thinking everything, about everything that possibly could go wrong and God's saying, I'm your victor. I'm the victory. Quit thinking of everything that goes wrong because you are victorious. 
When you face a problem and you are in God, you are victorious before you even face the problem. If we can really grab hold of that, I am the winner before I even come into the, the battle. Why? Because God's the one fighting. We get ready to go in the battle and God says, I got it. I got this battle for you. You know, imagine that, you know, getting ready to go into the boxing rink against something that's, you know, twice your size and God says, I got this one. And he steps in and the, the enemy just all of a sudden shrinks. <laughs> and God says, I can take him out. <laughs> I can take this enemy out. Yeah, this is my battle. If we just start casting our cares upon him and saying, God, it's your battle. I am victorious because he is victorious. He has never lost a battle, never lost a, never lost a battle, never lost a war. And as long as we rest in him, we will be victorious. No matter how big the enemy looks. Little David, you know, three or four foot tall against a nine foot giant. God says, we got this. David says, God, you and I have got this. We've got this, God, victorious. Joseph sold into slavery. God, I don't understand this, but you're, you and I have got this. You've made, you made a promise. My brothers are going to bow down to me, and I'm, I'll see them again. I don't know when or how, but I'm going to see them again. You, I don't know how as a slave they're ever going to bow down to me, but God, you, you've got this battle. How do we look at it? Are we willing to trust God that he has it all? George Mueller God, we need, we need money for at the end of the month for the rent. We need, we need money for the food on the table for these kids. God provides. God provides. All because of faith. They're saying, God, we're a victor because you're the winner. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. Lord, we ask that you help us as we go through this week. Lord, help us really see that we are victorious because you are victorious, that you have a great power for us, and help us to just have the faith to walk in that victory and that power. Guide us and lead us in all that we do. In your son's name, amen.